We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. You talked about trying to approximate music yeah in your work and you were definitely trying to approximate hip-hop and jazz and funk yeah well i mean before i started writing for the voice i did a lot of radio a lot of freeform radio i had a show that came on from like midnight to five in the morning called strange vibrations from the hardcore that was also an inspiration too you know just mixing on the ones and twos you know late night freeform radio you know so how's that an inspiration for the writing well because you just realize that there are no boundaries. You know what I mean? There's no limits. DJing to me is all, you know, it's all about the segue. You know what I mean? How you kind of flow between one vibe to another vibe. You know what I mean? So, you know, in some of that writing, I'm giving you some street vernacular. I'm giving you some like critical, French critical theory yeah. terminology. You yeah. know what I mean? And then, then I'll give you just like a, a plain spoken kind of sentence too. Greg Tate is one of the greatest writers of the modern era. I was shaped as a writer by reading his work, especially in his collection, Flyboy in the Buttermilk, and being in awe of his style, his brilliance, his thought process. I was transformed as a writer by getting involved with his work. And when I moved to New York and met him and was able to call him on the phone and talk about writing and culture for hours, I was so moved. He's amazing to talk to, a true genius. Here we go. It's the legend Greg Tate on Touré Show. So you are, to me, one of the great philosophers on Black cultural wherewithal and what is going on and what has happened. <laughs> um, so I'm, what just, I'm, doing? Okay. I'm interested yeah. in just you talking about, in your perspective, the most important mm. Black cultural figures of the last, say, 50 years. Who are the mm. folks who have, men and women who have set the table for what it is that we are all doing. Yeah. Um, well, Miles Davis is the, the alpha and the omega Yes, for me, um, you know, because he was also the, um, the first jazz artist that um, I became um, a devotee of and uh, really obsessed about not just the records, but then 
you know, uh, his thinking process, his thought process, his creative process, you know, um, because he was he was making masterpieces in in like a couple of hours, you know. Um, I mean, we know like, uh, you know, Kind of Blue was, uh, you know, that was pretty much a couple of sessions, you know, coming in with no prepared music and that amazing band. But then Bitches Brew um, was a similar kind of thing. You just uh, took about 12, 13 baddest players he knew. Um, again, came in with just some sketches, started conducting and orchestrating in the studio. Um, and over three days, you know, they came out with, uh, you know, the core core tracks of that. And then Teo Macero did his wizardry on them, you know. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that, that idea that you could actually not just improvise on the bandstand, but in the studio, you know, with the clock ticking and, and, uh, you know, budget budget flying out the window. And his whole thing, when he got into the 70s, the whole thing was, um, said, just he told, uh, told the engineer, Teo, said, just keep the tapes running. You know what I mean? So, um, and Teo's job became to kind of sift through that and kind of collage it into something that Miles uh, felt represented, you know, his ideas. So, um, and... You know, the impact of particularly that music he made in the 70s, like you hear it everywhere. You know, I mean, to me, he was doing proto-house, proto-hip-hop, proto-jungle, you know, proto-every micro-genre we can think of, you know, because he was, by then, he had he had come around to this idea that um, it was all about composing around the drum for the rest of the century. Like, that was, like, the gold mine, the untapped reservoir. And so, you know, as much as, you know, it's like when— Literally the same year that, you know, we're told Cool Herc was um, kind of creating the, you know, uh, the basis of, of breakbeat turntabling. Like Miles created a, was making breakbeat albums on the corner, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And uh, Big Fun, other things like that, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's he's that visionary sonically, you know what I mean? But also he's just emblematic of... Um, of blackness, black creativity, you know what I mean? He was very, he was invested with his own mythology as like a, a, a dark-skinned man with a whole lot of presence, you know, and a, and a whole lot of style, you know what I mean? So there's a whole complex of things going on there psychologically and um, musicologically, you know, they're they're kind of they're like two waves kind of flowing in, in and out around him, you know, at the same time, I mean... Uh, and then, you know, it was something about just the era of the, you know, black power movement, black arts movement. I mean, you know, he he's a great kind of sifter and editor of the culture. You know what I mean? It's a way in which you could see that other people had kind of made discoveries that were important to him, like James Brown, like Sly, you know, like Jimmy, you know. Um, and he kind of went from not knowing who those people in the world, and why they should matter to like, like, oh, yeah. This is this is all where it's going next. And I got to I got to get on this wave and kind of put my own stamp and stank on it. You know, and all the people that, you know, like Carlos Santana talks about, like, yeah, you know, we you know, we had an impact on him. He you know, he added Kungus to the band, but then we had to start following him again. And that was kind of like the process 
with all his bands. I mean, one of the things he really believed in was like, after five years, you swap out the band, you get some younger, hotter cats, you know what I mean? Like, who are going to push you and drive you, you know? So he gets Tony Williams, he's like 16, 17, you know, who's just the next imminent force on the drums, you know what I mean? And still is, you know? So, so that's the other thing, too. Like, he doesn't just get Reinvention. great players. Yeah, but he gets innovators. He gets people who are going to become the next great band leaders. You know, they're going to go on and continue to be influences after they leave Miles. So he's got he's got th- those kind of instincts, too, you know, that really push the music um, forward and kind of consolidated things, too. You know, it's like there's always a lot of great ideas flying around, but um, – with jazz, it's all about the the distillation process, like picking those things from from pop culture, from world world culture. They're gonna enlarge the the statement, the vocabulary, vernacular, all of that stuff. So, yeah. if Miles is one of the figures on mm-hmm. your Mount Rushmore, who else is there? <laughs> you know, um, well, I mean, in literature, you know, you got Toni Morrison. You yes. know, she's just at the Yes, you know, I mean, at the at the at the the highest, you know, point on that totem, you know, uh, that that hierarchy, man. Um, and I mean, it's just in these manifold ways, you know, because first you got the novels to deal with, you know, and from a literary standpoint, you know, just in terms of productivity and a certain standard, you know, she's right up there with any of the the great writers mm-hmm. of the world, like all those people that we had to study in college, you know, from Russia or Ireland or England or, you know, wherever, like, yeah, she's got just uh, a body of work. Like she's got a whole shelf, maybe right. a couple of shelves, right. you know, just the novels. Fiction, right? nonfiction. Yeah. But then, then that's the thing too. It's like as an essayist, you know, she's just such a great, um, expounder and and educator about the way um, racism works in literature, you know, and the way in which um, um, black writers, you know, have a particular uh, opportunity, I won't say obligation, but to, uh, to counter um, the exclusion, the absence, you know, of uh, black vision, black presence, you know, um, in particularly American literature, you know, um, and, you know, I mean, as much as anybody, you know, she's the reason why, um, you don't just go to college now and just study the great white men sure. of literature. You sure. know, she won that battle. You sure. know what I mean? That was and the way that yeah. she talks, the voice. Oh yeah. yeah. It's so yeah. black. She, without... well, she, yeah. She's, a, she, I mean, she's a, to me, she's a, a musical presence yes. through her voice. Like who else? You don't want to hear anybody else read her book. So, you know, it's great right. that, that all those audio books exist where it's like she is um, she is the vocalist, yeah. you know, of her work, and right? And it's cool, yeah. her presence, yeah. and it's brilliant, yeah. and it's... It's magical. Yes. You know, um, in the, um, I guess the, the documentary that just came out um, on her, uh, life and work. Um, this guy tells a story about her doing a reading in Mexico. And one of the things in that film, they show you like um, their editions in her book, even in Farsi. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they have the cover. I mean, you know, Iran, Iraq, <laughs> you know, um, 
you know, all, you know, all of Asia, Japan, China, you know, so forth. So she's that kind of eminence. But um, she's in Mexico. A bunch of folks show up to hear her read. And the thing is, they don't speak English. And so her friend asked, well, would you like a translator? They said, no, 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 no. We just want to hear her read, you know, because that's the spell. That's the incantation, right? Yeah. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so if it's Miles and Tony, who else? Um, I mean, definitely among visual artists, you know, I'd have to say it's Romare Bearden and Jean-Michel Basquiat, yes. you know. And I mean, with Bearden really being that figure like Miles that shows everybody else how you bring uh, a black figure into um, in that kind of abstract field. You know, an abstract approach. You know, uh, to, uh, to 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 painting, sculpture, whatever. You know, but I mean, you don't. When you see his work, it just seems so inevitable. Like it's always been there. You know what I mean? And for us, it did. I mean, you know, we. I'm sure you came up in a household where it was just like Beard, Bearden was there before you were. Absolutely. So it was like when you looked around, and you know, I remember my mother had um, 
That was a, a booklet from one of his shows. Uh, um, but I just remember that being on the coffee table, you know, immediately. But I remember yeah. my dad, because my dad lived in Brooklyn and in Harlem and the projects, and he went to look at one. Prevalence of ritual. Prevalence of ritual. Yeah. He yeah. looked at one beard and piece, and he was like, yep, that's the way it was. And I'm like, well, <laughs> what, 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 that's right. what, what about the collage <laughs> and the art and the way? He's just like. Yeah. No, that's basically a mm. photograph of the way it was and just right. the way that it felt yeah. was so accurate to him. He yeah. wasn't even dealing with it at like, an artistic level. Yeah, it's even like, though it's like yeah. the you know, the 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 heads were the size of buildings and the buildings were the size of like, you know, little kids. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean but that I mean, and that's the that's the power of it. It was like he found a way to make his language uh take up, you know, an abstract approach to to rendering things like feel. Like it was reportage, yes. you know what I mean. And then you know, in uh, he he he's got that whole series dealing with uh, the Odyssey. You know, he's dealing with mythical yes. figures, man, and you know, and that stuff is so phantasmagorical. And then he's got a whole other body of work where you know when he moved to um uh to the islands. Uh, um, oh man, okay, yeah, well, I'll, that'll come back to me too, but. You know, the last part of his life, he's kind of going back and forth, you know. And so he's he's painting things in, um, you know, um, in these, you know, jungle bush scenarios. You know what I mean? And um, there's a lot of nudes in there. So it's a whole erotic element that comes in. So He doesn't he's seem so much, to, man. like some other painters seem to feel like I must make black people look better. Uh, and he does, but he doesn't seem like weighed down well, by this need well, to lift. He, I mean, he 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 he's bringing you the um, his idea of a of a of a black figure as a silhouette. You know, he's seeing like he's seeing a a form that's analogous to to African sculpture. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, which another painter, uh, 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 great black abstract painter Jack Whitten, he says African sculpture is the DNA. A visual perception, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, if you really want to know how to see things beyond just the surface, you know, but things that have like a powerful, you know, surface to it's like, yeah, you go there. So, I mean, his generation is, um, or 20th century painting, I mean, really, you know, as we know, it pretty much comes out of the study of African sculpture and statuary and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, and he's, he's one of those people that really made it, he rendered it 3D, but you know, or 2D, you know, but the, you know, for the, you know, the Western painters, the European painters, the Picassos, it was like, it was a way of kind of getting out of the limitations of classical painting, classical perspective, you know, creating something that was just vivid, you know, and that had a certain kind of mod modern swing to it, you know, so who had more modern swing than they were seeing the modern swing of jazz and jazz dances, Josephine Baker and all that kind of stuff, you know, um, and trying to render that, that energy. But he, you know, he's not coming to it as like, um, some, as something that's alien or foreign. That's his culture, mm -hmm. you know, black culture, black juke joint culture, big band culture, Duke Ellington, um, Louis Armstrong, those people all turn up in the work, you know, blues guitar players, you know what I mean? Like, um, and then he's creating no, so brilliantly like the the interior spaces in which that stuff happened the inside of a juke joint you know which has a real specific look and design and decor to it or and inside of you know black homes in the south where you know people were creating their their own idea 
of interior decorating, you know what I mean, that has just a real specific presence to it. I think, like, um, like when I look at um, uh, people like Micheline Thomas, mm. you know, um, you know, who's giving you these, you know, black women in these interiors in the 70s, and anybody who's who kind of had, like, a black grandmother or aunt, you know, who, who was also kind of visionary and hip in terms of the way they design their house. As soon as you see her work, you're like, oh, that's like Auntie So-and-So's house. So that's like, you know, I mean, my grandmother, Callie, like every room of the house, like had a different de- de- decor scheme, you know, like when I, and when I, so when I, you know, you start to go to those like Whitney Biennials, you know, and you see like people recreating the insides of, you know, certain kind of living spaces, says, man, shit, I could be in here if I could just, Man, if we had taken pictures of all of Granny's rooms, we'd be, be up in that piece, you know. Okay, but, uh, so you got three with Miles, Tony Morrison, and Bearden, Bearden slash Basquiat. Yeah. yeah, and you know, so you know, Bearden, you know, you you know, when you talk about the the, the sphere of influence, you know, it's like anybody that's dealing with a black figure, like it's Absolutely. coming out of Bearden. You know Absolutely. what I mean? So, and then anybody who's trying to trying to represent blackness and abstraction, you know, kind of has to go through him too, because he was just so masterful at kind of putting it together. So there's other people I want to talk about. There's other masters um, who, because of the success of the younger artists that we all know, then the dealers started looking like, well, right. who's here? And like, you know, why, you know, like, I think we've kind of maxed out like the Yale grads, you know, so let's look at the folks who've been here, you know, um, or, or in some cases, I know they were recommended by some of those younger artists, right? You know, so you're talking about people like Jack Whitten and um, um, Al Loving and uh, Joe Overstreet, Ed Clark. Um, man, let me see. There's another 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 cat I'm forgetting. Uh, Sam Gilliam out of D.C. You know, so these people um, got 40, 50 years of work that even though they had like shows, you know, they did in in their younger days. They got in museums and galleries, but the 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 possibility of them being recognized or being promoted or or marketed as art world superstars, you know, like it hadn't happened because of Basquiat hadn't happened, you know, that level of success. So then, you know, so the world has changed around them in terms of like the world that, you know, I'd say that cats like you and me as much a part of in terms of all that 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 kind of uh the kind of critical writing we did around the culture, you know what I mean? But then, you know, of course, the, you know, Cornell's and Skip Gates and all that. So so it's that infiltration, though, of the spaces that um, make things matter. You so know? who else yeah. do you want to put on your Mount Rushmore? Uh, you know, you know, well, I got a problem with Mount Rushmore as a model, but, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm rolling with you, brother. You know what I mean? I'm rolling with you. You know what I mean? I mean, so I'm, I'm, building, I'm, build, I'm building my way to Basquiat. You know what I mean? You yeah, know, yeah. I'm like, you know, I talk in paragraphs. I, I move yeah. in a yeah. circular fashion. So, but I wanted to get those other, those other folks in there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because um, now all of those artists are getting, those cats I just mentioned, Wittens and Gilliams, and I was like, they're getting the shine from the dealers because, um, and it's a kind of typical art world thing to do is you, you know, you you leap onto like a, a 70 or 80 year old black master. You know what I mean? So that like when they check out, you own all the work, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. At the time. Yeah. And, you you know, and uh, you kind of just by having them in your spaces and them getting uh, reviews and collectors, blah, 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 the whole scene, you know. So anyway, um, 
Um, but I, but that's what I look at. You know, when I look, you know, you look at Miles, you look at Tony, you look at like the sphere of influence, the people who um, have come through them and uh, been able to, to to make a presence. Now, I mean, you know, it's like with Tony, it's like, you know, we're in a golden age of black novel writing now. Sure. You know what I mean, man? And uh, you know, like every week, somebody's coming out with another book that also doesn't just bear the influence of Tony Morrison, but Ishmael Reed. Sure. It's vital. Octavia Butler. That's the, you know, all these people are vital, you know, um, in terms of the 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 kind of literature that say like a Paul Beatty is writing now or, um, you know, Juno Diaz or, um, 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 man, that's my man, um, uh, Casey Lyman's work, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So, yeah, I mean, the way people are kind of merging these forms, you know, memoir and fiction and fantasy, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, Ishmael, those writers that came through in the 70s, 70s particular, Tony Morrison and, and uh, Ishmael, and Amir, Amir Baraka, you know. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, um, I mean, I wouldn't be writing if not for Amir Baraka, you know what I mean? Like, I read black music, and that set me on two paths simultaneously, like, became like a a, a vinyl junkie. You know, early crate digger, you know, I was like about 15, 16. And then, you know, I didn't just read his his musical writing, you know, but that had a big impact on the way I thought about and listened to music. But then, um, you know, his political essays and then his poetry, you know, like, you know, if, if uh, you know, if I have a style, it comes as much out of like black arts movement poets sure. as it does out of any essays. You know, Pedro Bell wrote the line of No Problem with Funkadelic, you know. But yeah, Ish and Amiri, man, those are those are major, major uh, influences. Yeah, but Amiri, I mean, I think as Arnold Rampersad said, said Rampersad said, um, is he and like Langston Hughes and you know I'd say Intazaki, Shange, you know, are among the few writers who had like um, a definitive impact across writing disciplines. You know, in particular, I mean like. You know, Minamiri wrote, you know, memorable uh, plays, poems, stories, essays. You know, and Langston's really the only person you can point to that just left an indelible mark, you know, in all those all those forms. So, you know, um, so, Amiri, you know, Amiri's, in, of course, in there um, in terms of those those pantheon figures. Um, um, but I said, you know, John michel definitely. You know, because um, I think for the generation of of folks who um, who became culturally conscious, aware in the in the seventies and eighties, like you know, he's somebody you literally got to see just erupt. Mm. You know, um, as a game changer in a way that I always say is analogous to Jimi Hendrix. Okay. Like Hendrix just all of a sudden showed up in England and, you know, transformed that whole landscape and then went on to transform the landscape of music in general, you know. Um, and, you know, I mean, you know, Jimmy's within that 50-year <laughs> kind sure. of, you know, timeline too. But um, but I think, um, you know, in terms of uh, making impact in a way, in a in a field where no black artists had ever left, like, those uh, that had that kind of um, 
explosive, you know, kind of premiere, you know, where he just changed the way everybody had to think about what was possible for, you know, for a black painter, black artist, you know, within the international, the mainstream scene, you know. And uh, I mean, and that opening was there because of hip hop, because of graffiti, you know, because of punk rock to a certain extent, you know, it was like the doors cracked open a little bit. Um, the people downtown were were looking for some for some new energy, and they they were already feeling it from just the the presence of of kids from the Bronx and uptown and Brooklyn, you know, being downtown, you know, being in the East Village, you know, like they had the same kind of impact that the Jazz Cats had, you know, back in the '60s, you know, when Sunrise and you know Archie Shep and all those people came through, so. Um, and they were coming with, with like a new culture, a culture that was new, that was dynamic, that was sophisticated, you know, um, that had a language, that had a disability to sample anything that had ever been going on. So, you know, with Basquiat, you know, he's like Miles in that sense of like um, he's really able to uh, distill and um, filter like input simulation from anywhere and kind of make it make it register you know, on the, on the, on the canvas, yeah. you know, um, and he makes it possible, his success, you know, um, makes it possible for, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the Kara Walkers and the Gary Simmons yes. and the Glenn Ligons and the Wangechi Mutus and, um, uh, da, 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 what's my man? Kayende. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, yeah, because, you know, what the thing is, because he doesn't come from any of those programs because he's self-taught, you know what I mean? Um, he really doesn't give them a formula like, you know, I mean, particularly, I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those things. It's like jazz. It's like you go to Japan, you go to Europe. They look at Basquiat and say, oh, yeah, I mean, he's he's a modern master. You know, he's a he's a successor to the people that we have already claimed as our, like, cultural masters, but he's bringing all of this American black stuff into it. He's bringing all that swing and all that swag and all that hip-hop, you know. So all those things that represent, like, in Europe, they don't they don't have a crisis of identity around being cultured, you know what I mean, because cultures are thousands of years old. They got their masters. But anytime you go to Paris, man, you go to any restaurant or get a step on any elevator, you're going to hear Charlie Parker, <laughs> Louis Armstrong, you know, they're not they're not playing, you know, like Debussy, you know what I mean? Like those things are, are seen as it's like anything that's in the Louvre. It's like um, it's a marker of a certain kind of great culture from a period that's past, but it's not reflecting the now, you know? I want to, um, we could go on with this. I mm-hmm. know there's oh, like yeah. another hundred mm-hmm. names that we could kick yeah. in. No, 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 I mean, but you know, those are like, you know. Those I are mean, major ones. Yeah, those are major ones. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. 
Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamin, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to hear about, I want to hear you talk about writing, because, you know, mm. I know that when I was first in this city, New York, trying to figure out how to write. You know, I read Flyboy and the Buttermilk over and over and over, trying to figure out like. How. Well, you you blew my mind the time I was over your house and I opened up your copy, man, and you were just like, you would yellow line all kinds. Of, like, the thing man, is that it's, it's underlined from different eras of my life, right? So I read yeah. it when I was into yellow highlighter, and then yeah. when I was into blue <laughs> highlighter, and then when I was into Deep. you know black okay. and yeah. red pen yeah. and like. Yeah. You know, because I read it over different times and got different things out of it. And, yeah. like, just, I mean, your approach to a sentence, your approach to a paragraph was just, like, very influential to me and to a lot mm. of people yeah. um, who came up behind you. Um, just, can you just talk about a sentence and talk about a paragraph? Like, how do you know this sentence is good, this sentence is done, this Man. paragraph is done? Well, you, you got to understand, like, I mean, most of that most of that stuff in Flyboy was written for The Village Voice, right. which was a weekly which meant that quick, yeah, like you had to get it in on on Friday so it could come out Tuesday night. But it night. was very thoughtful. It was, well, I it mean, was you, not rushed off. It was very oh, it was, stylized. It was, it was, and, yeah, well, it, it was kind of like you know. I mean, I told you, you know, I discovered Baraka like when I was about fifteen, and then, you know, um, but I was, you know, just reading everything I could get my hands on. You know, my parents were really well read. A lot of books and magazines. They were also in the movement. You know what I mean? So those ideas were floating around. And then, you know, you become a teenager, you discover music, you call your own. So besides Miles, there's Parliament Funkadelic and Earth, Wind & Fire. I mean, that's just the music of my adolescence, you know. All that, all that 70s R&B, funk, black rock stuff, you know, that's all the stuff I'm listening to through high school all the way into, you know, into Howard University years, you know. And going to see a lot of shows, there's a lot of live music, so... Plus, I was in a community of people who were, who just had deep conversations about music. You know what I mean? So, you know, I'm just like the the young in there, absorbing the knowledge of all these people that have these very, like, um, you know, just well thought out aesthetic ideas around, you know, why Clifford Brown was great. You know, why mm -hmm. they thought Miles wasn't Jack compared to Clifford Brown. You know what I mean? It was like a very argumentative musical culture too. So in a way I was being prepared, you know, to be a voice writer, which was so much about like um, just kind of being aggro about your opinions mm -hmm. about music and like putting it down like you were the authority, the law, the Lord mm -hmm. of musical that. thought, you know, it was like, and of course, you know, our editor was Chris Gow, 
you know, Bob who, who, yeah, who thought legendary. of him, who, you know, the self-proclaimed dean yes. <laughs> of American rock criticism. So, you know, you're also, you know, just trying to, you know, in some ways kind of, uh, um, kind of meet the, uh, the aggression that he's bringing to the process too. There was a lot of voice, the lowercase V in your work. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of knew very much what you sounded like. Well, well, Vernon Reed gave, you know, he he gave me my, yeah, Vernon Reed of Living Color, my boy, you know, known each other since early, late seventies in DC, you know, when he used to come down and play with bands like Defunct, 930 Club down there, you know, but, um, but he gave me my favorite piece of uh, of uh, acknowledge or recognition uh, as a writer. Once he told me, he said, uh, he "said Yeah, man." He said, "When I first started reading you in the voice, I didn't know what the fuck you were talking about, but I knew it had to be a brother." <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely, definitely you know, some black yeah, yeah, voice you know, to yeah. it. Hell yeah. yeah! Well, you know, it was interesting too because you know, I mean, you come in to a certain period. I think probably, you know, I don't know when you. First started reading the the voice, but you know, but you know, people would just tell me all the time, like, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, you know, I mean, what is that word? You know, so I had to go to the dictionary. I, I like, didn't, okay. I didn't yeah. know a lot of people you were talking about. Mm-hmm. I didn't know mm-hmm. what you were talking about, but yeah. I'm like, yo, this is fun to yeah. read. All right, so give me some principles on good writing. Well, I mean, like, let me. Ju- I'll just separate it. Like, I didn't really know what. I was doing, you know, what I, well, really, you know, the first six or seven years, I mean, you know, seat of the pants, journalism, like you start, you get this feedback, you know what I mean? But until I moved to New York, you know, which is like about a year and some change after um, I started writing for The Voice, you know, from DC, I didn't know anybody was reading that stuff, but my mother and my brother, you know what I mean? So you get here and it's, you know, very contained community energy field. So you're running into people. I mean, like, I had a locksmith that, that, you know, told me, read my work, you know, like, so that was also a thing too. Oh, this is going, it's not just like the village scene people, but this cat from the Bronx is checking it out. And, you know, um, but I think um, in the beginning, like, you know, you, you, I just felt like a certain um, impetus to be all about some shock and awe on the page. So it was all about trying to figure out what's, what was that opening line going to be? It was just going to kind of grab people, you know, around the neck and then take them on this journey. But, um, writing is all about, um, it's about rhetorical strategies, rhetorical devices. You know, it's like the different ways you can set up, uh, a sentence or, or a paragraph and you can use inspiration from, speaking from preaching you know uh from uh diatribe you know from you know uh the music you're listening to itself that was a big inspiration you know um uh trying to translate um the the dynamics the flow um the sonics even of the music I was cuz I listened to a lot of Listen to a lot of jazz with a lot of avant-garde jazz. So I was really listening to things where cats were really stretching the form, you know. And um, and the voice was like a platform where you could be as creative as you wanted to be in the space of writing like a, 
you know, 150 word, 200 word record review. You know, yeah. like yeah, you could just you could treat the record like you know it was just um, a compound. You know, like and you were gonna alchemically mix it yeah. with something else to you know arrive at you know some kind of little uh, little and explosive. A lot of times, theorem. I felt like I felt like if if the reader is thinking too much about the words on the page, then then that's you've lost them, right? Mm, mm-hmm. But you didn't seem to care about that, <laughs> you know. Like I'm paying attention to the spellings and the word, the the writing itself is yeah. self conscious in a fun and funky way. Yeah, man. And yeah, you know yeah, the references yeah. are wild and wide. I got to yeah. go read another book to figure out what this sentence means. And well, you're you like, know, I yeah, mean, that's because cool. yeah, well, because I'm also like I had read, you know, um, the Lester Bangses. Mm-hmm. And the Richard Meltzers is like mm-hmm. these these cats who were writing for Cream out of Detroit, and they were writing about um, you know Iggy Pop and the MC Five, and but they were digging Sunrise Albert Isler too, you know what I mean? But they were all about like yeah, putting their personality front and center, you know, just saying like. So you try to do that? Well, I mean, I just knew it could be done, you know. And then, you know, somebody told Chris Gow, or they told me that Chris Gow told them like. You know, at a certain point, he was looking for, he wanted a black Lester Banks. And so I showed up, and I guess I'd, like, fit the bill, you know, because I already just assumed that, um, you know, I knew I had a passion for music, passion for writing, and um, and I had this space that would indulge me, you know, to kind of really just stretch, stretch out, you know, to improvise, to jam, you know, on the page, you know. And it's only like, you know, again, it's like, I'm not defining the rest of the paper. I'm just saying, you this know, like in this little, yeah, these two columns you're giving me, whatever. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go off. But you talked about trying to approximate music yeah. in your work. And you were yeah. definitely trying to approximate hip-hop and jazz and funk. Yeah. Well, I mean, before I started writing for The Voice, I was doing, um, I did a lot of radio, like in, in D.C. and a lot of freeform radio. I had a show. They came on from like midnight to five in the morning called Strange Vibrations from the Hardcore. So it was on what was ostensibly a jazz station. But I take those hours to start mixing in, you know, Coltrane with Hendrix and, you know, or come out of a Dexter Gordon ballad and play like the the, the Commodore's <laughs> extended version of Zoom or something, you know. Phone would be lighting up. Some people would be like appalled, you know what I mean? I think one I think one of the old DJs, like he came in screaming into the studio because I was playing some psychedelic shit, you know, like, uh, you know, in drive time or something, man. But um, but that was, that was also an inspiration too, you know, just mi- mixing on the ones and twos, you know, late night freeform radio, you know. So How's you, that an inspiration for the writing? Well, because you just realize that there are no boundaries. You know what I mean? There's no limits to what you can do. Like with sound, like if, you, if you're kind of guided by sound and, and, and rhythm and the ways in which you can like, you know, DJing to me is all, you know, it's all about the segue, you know what I mean? How you kind of sl- flow between one vibe to another vibe, you know what I mean? So um, that's why like in, you know, in some of that writing, you know, um, I'm giving you, you know, some, some street vernacular. I'm giving you some like critical French critical theory yeah. terminology. You yeah. know what I mean. And then, then I'll give you just like a a plain spoken, you know, kind of sentence too. You know, um, 
but I but I realized that like like a lot of in a lot of the music I like, you know, the Hendrix or you know, Sunrise Art Ensemble Chicago, Miles, like they were just mixing up all the idioms and kind of arriving at something that was a uh, it was kind of like an oblique take on like uh on other uh, funk or soul or what have you. You know what I mean? So um you kind of from jazz you definitely get that 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 example uh uh that example that you know you can be you can go as high or as low as you want to like in the same phrase you know what i mean um it's just about kind of getting a you know just a nasty flow going and that variety of attack you talk <clears throat> about those are yeah that's what i mean by rhetorical strategies like you've got all these these ways of getting of getting in and out of a sentence that are just based on um these different styles you know it's like um um and a lot the thing i found you know too when um um i got a certain amount of notoriety at the voice so new york times would call the rolling stone would call and the first thing they would say is like well you can write can you write it in a way other than your voice style and you know i was i laughed cuz i was like well, that's about 10 styles of course i could write that mono style that you guys go you know because you know most publications like read like they were written right. every word was written by the same person yes that's right that's yeah right. you know that's what right. i mean so you know so that that became fun to play with too just to see inside of like a uh a place that was working with a stricter um kind of notion of what voice and style was to figure out how to just make the same kind of statements politically I mean, necessarily, talk, I wanted to make you yeah. talk about trying to be a madman on the page. What mm. does that mean? <laughs> I think that was, you know, like, it, I mean, that shifted, you know what I mean? When I came in, you know, I was like young, hungry, angry, you know, um, like wanted to, again, be about a certain kind of future shock and all, you know, and uh, take as many liberties as I could, you know, and I had an editor that would indulge it and push back against it, too, you know what I mean? But. Um, you know, uh, it was just to say, here's an, here's an opportunity. Let me take as much license as I can, you know, cause you never know, um, like, uh, what's, what's going to happen if you have to start making a living doing a straighter form, you may not be able to go back to having this much opportunity, but, um, you know, it was just the time, man, it was just the times too, you know, cause that's when everything was happening. You know, hip hop was emerging. The black rock thing was emerging. The avant garde jazz thing was still pumping. People doing punk, what they call punk jazz. You know what I mean. So a lot of that is just inf inspiration from uh, the musical energy of the city. You know, I too. mean, you know, part of being a, a writer is about the stylistic things that we're talking about, but mm -hmm. also about what you choose to talk about. Right. And even if we removed the Tate style, right there's still really interesting, powerful ideas being discussed mm -hmm. when you're saying, you know, you, you know, just when you're describing a night watching early rock him, or, mm -hmm. you know, like Eddie Murphy is like prior as to mm -hmm. Hendrix is to this one and that one and different essays that you're doing. And like, just the things that the writer chooses to notice and the connections the writer chooses to make mm -hmm. are just as important as the stylistic choices that, like yeah you know well yeah i mean you know it's it's just like generationally you know in that in that kind of 80s moment like i mean you're looking at these people making these you know who are just coming in off the street making these incredible breakthroughs like eddie murphy prince mj you know Wynton marcellus basquiat you know 
uh, Vernon Reed, Living Color, Bad Brains, Fishbone, you know, like there's a lot of innovation just coming out of a particular generation at that time. It's also kind of setting the tempo and and um, kind of electrifying the moment, you know what I mean? So your job, you know, if, you, if, if you're fortunate enough when all this culture is really erupting to actually be working for a weekly, you know, you get to be um, uh, a cultural definer, like on the ground in the moment, you know, like Ram LZ, you know, I mean, just, you know, I mean, these people are kind of making work and thinking thoughts that hadn't been thought before. And they're, and they're, and they're really like getting their hooks into the mainstream scene. You know what I mean? They're making kind of the, they're redefining what the mainstream is, you know, cause they're, they're also developing an audience too. And, you know, they've got, um, in retrospect, you see like, yeah, I mean, they had a, a Columbia Records or Epic Records, you know, chasing them too, you know, trying to be on top of the next new thing. So everybody's kind of chasing the artists in that period too. The artists are really kind of leading, you know, um, you know, kind of leading the um, the train or, you know, I mean, you like the parade. The, you were one of the few people who were there in that early 80s period when it was clubs when it was underground yeah, what who I, was saying like yo this hip this rap it was rap then this rap <laughs> thing is yeah. really interesting yeah. well, band, you know zulu and them they had really defined you know like it was one of those weird things i think you know it was that first piece that called it hip-hop then zulu just you know defined like what the elements were you know what i mean so it kind of came into being with its own critical theory too you know yeah. like yeah I mean, which i love you know it's like you know the 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 streets really define how the academics. We're going to talk about it later, yeah. But um, but I remember we I think it was maybe about eighty five. You know we did this cover story, Hip Hop Nation. Yep. And in retrospect, what's funny about that is like, it's almost everybody who was really making hip hop then is in that picture. Mm-hmm. Give or take like three or four people. But everybody I mean who's like a major figure, whether it's a DJ, an artist, a producer, you know, they managed to get them in that, you know, in that in that shot, you know, because it was um and it was just that first wave of um, you know, of a thing where the artists would define it. And then by the time like you guys show up, and I mean like you dream Karen and all those Scott and all those folks, man. It's like Scott Paulson Bryant, Scott Paulson Bryant, Karen Good, Dream Dream Hampton. Yeah, it's like um, you've already, you guys have taken this on as your culture. Right. You know, it's not a thing where it's like, oh, it's this thing that these guys and the Bronx and the Bronx. It's like a way. It's a way of life. I feel like I can remember a time that hip hop did not exist. Right. Yeah. Or you know, I was very young, but like you know, everybody's singing, and the first time hearing like. They rapped the whole song. Right. And it was like, you know, you heard moments of like rap interlude. But, well, but what was it about in those early days that you, when it was like 80, 1980, 81, very underground, you were like, yo, this. Well, you, here's the thing. Like, I was still in D.C. Like, I didn't move to New York until like fall of 82. Okay. You know what I mean? So before then, I was hearing it kind of blast out of the speakers of the mom and pop record stores. And because Go-Go was also a music of like um um of uh people having starting their own labels and pressing their own kind of white label records like go go and and rap you know and the rap in go go kind of all emerged at the same time so um and you know but rapper's delight was the one no question like i heard that coming out of the 
out of the speakers, and then you know it was on the radio. And I remember, you know, Chuck later on he was saying like uh, Chuck, D Chuck D of Public Enemy was just saying he didn't think it was possible based on the experiences, based on the experience of being in a club, hearing people like rap for fifteen minutes, that you could really make a rap record. You know, so he was like amazed that like this long ass, you know, rapping. Over a sample, they became like a number one hit. But you know that that set it off, you know. And then, um, but I, I mean, the thing is, I, I definitely remember like when the message came out, yes. Grandmaster Flash, Furious Five, and you know, uh, you know, Duke Booty and Melly Mel's, you know, you know, thoughtful, conscious, you know, or socially observant, you know, lyrics. Um, that really turned it around for a lot of cats too. You know what I mean, like. Um, so a lot of people who wouldn't who weren't even thinking about rapping when they realized like oh you could be this serious about your content you just didn't have to make a hip hop party record you know you didn't have to just make another party record you know like um, you could just talk about some stuff you know that was meaningful to you then that becomes a run up to Big Daddy Kane and Rakim and and then you know P and De La and Tribe Called Quest. Mm. You know Wu Tang Clan. You know mm-hmm. what I mean. So, um, and when you know when you, when you talk about like what's fascinating about Black culture is that you had these people that wouldn't have even thought about a career in music <laughs> that because of the the creative opportunity because of the lack of uh, of uh, rules. You know what I mean? Getting hip hop. Yeah, some yeah, of them, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, you think about like, yeah. I mean, these, like, these guys. Yeah, Rakim these, came from a whole musical family. Yeah. He probably would have found his way into music, even if it wasn't rapping. Q-Tip yeah. has that voice that just would crush in any way, so he could find his way in. But maybe no, a Chuck D would be like, "I'm gonna I, go I do something know, yeah, else." I, I don't know if any. You know, I don't know. I don't think. I think like uh, because with all of those, all of those folks, like the rapping part became an obsession. You yeah. know what I mean? Just to just do that every day. Yeah. Like for hours a day. You know what I mean? Like they were putting in the time that musicians put in. Sure. You know, like honing that honing that craft. Going you know? to other lunchrooms. Yeah. Right. And, and battling then, people yeah. at other and schools. Then, and then, you know, and then people who um who had styles that were that were unique, they were also thoughtful about it, like Kumo D. Mm-hmm. Like Kumo D kind of broke down, you know, inside of, you know, the sleeve for one record, like, you know, what the qualities of a great rapper were, you know, so there was always, uh, there was already this, this thought process around the thing, you know what I mean? And, um, and you know, the, the, the albums were, were there, they're like theory books, they're guidebooks too. You know what I mean? It was like, you learn, you know, the, all these cats that we're talking about, like when they were 14, 15, they grabbed onto this thing. So they learned all that material, you know what I mean? And so, you know, I mean, one of the things we know about MCs is, man, they just have phenomenal memories. They're like walking around, like I, you know, Jay Z is walking around with every song he ever recorded in his head. I mean, well, yeah. it, it, I mean, he's he. Yeah. I mean, it's best. That's a special memory. What, but but he, even De La Soul, you know, think about like they got, you know, they got those three albums, man, and they got all those dense lyrics. Yeah, they, you know, I mean, those got the same thing. I think know? some people, yeah. I think some of us would be surprised how much guys forget. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. What's your top five? Oh man, it, it shifts all the time. It was fun, you know. It was funny, like um, you know, because now I do these workshops and and talks in classrooms, and you know, like you re- you kind of realize, like your top five, man. A lot of these nineteen twenty year olds, they never, they yeah. don't even, they never even heard of these guys, no. you know. Yeah. But you know, you know, and like, but you always 
but I always kind of like, like, um, kind of, uh, like mortify some of my colleagues, you know, who teach, you know, cause they'll be talking about these kids never heard of like Lauren Hill or the Fugees. And I said, that kid was born in 1999. That kid was born in 2001. Your freshman was born in 2001 or 2002. Come on. Why, like, why would you? Yeah, he? right. And so, like, their pop cultural consciousness, that's just when they're born. Like, yeah. they're probably not even thinking about, you know, like, yeah. pop culture in a conscious way. Oh, so, they, what's, what's yours? Yeah. Um, off the top, unfiltered. Yeah, yeah. Kane, Rakim. Um, uh, KRS One. Um, uh, man, it's so hard with with like, like Dela and Native and um and Tribe are kind of outside because to me they're like real bands too, mm-hmm. like Funkadelic and Earthworm Fire were bands. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, but I, then again, I always tell people like you know. Uh, I think of Red Man and Method Man together as like one great MC. Mm-hmm, you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I love both of their styles, but they're not necessarily cats like I like to listen to for a whole album. Oh but, my God. But some yeah. of Red Man's first two, three albums. Yeah. No, they, they, I'll yeah. be that. Oh my yeah. God. I they burned ass, a hole you know in that I mean? CD. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, but, um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, Chuck, you know, for sure. Um, and, you know, Lauren. It's just so is that in order? Amazing. I don't, I don't or is even that know. Just if I, a top five. Yeah, I was just trying to do it without like overthinking it Not too as much. A, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Big Daddy Kane, Rakim, Karis, One, Chuck D, Lauren Hill. Okay. Yeah. You okay. know, and okay. Method Man and Red Man is some kind of weird outlier. Outlier, to, you know. I mean, I mean, yeah. yeah. It, it, but then you know, like, yeah, when you go to these classes, it's like, you know, um, like I remember, man, I was I was at UVA doing a talk and. Was talking to some of the cats afterwards, and uh, so this would have been around the time Good Kid in Mad City like first came out, you know. And those kids right then they were just like, "Yeah, Kendrick, yeah. Kendrick is a man," you know. Immediately I mean, they they heard it. Immediately. Kendrick is a great argument to make for one of the greatest of all time. Now I see a lot of folks yeah. who are millennial and whatnot. Talk about yeah. Drake is one of the greatest of all time, and I'm well, like, well, I mean, look, it's, it's gonna be, it's gonna dog. be, but it's gonna be what's popular. You know what I mean? Like we're so aesthetic with like our choices. You know what I mean? Like I mean, New Yorkers are, are just like yeah. so analytical, yes, about the stuff, and it's like it's uh, gotta be dense. It's gotta be, oh yeah, you gotta be smart. Well, yeah, New York, you gotta be smart. Yes, yeah, you gotta be witty, metaphors. You know what I mean? You gotta have an attitude. You gotta have swagger. Yes. It's like I mean, it's just a lot of things that go into, you know, and that stuff just doesn't even matter. Yes, it, it doesn't even matter anymore. You know what I mean? It doesn't. Like, it's not really? the same. Yeah, and, I, not, and I hate being not, like back yeah. in my day, but yeah. They, yeah, from, to the to the point that like it used to be, New York would be telling like. You know, folks in the South, that ain't hip-hop. Right. Now, totally. the South will tell you, like, we don't care if it's hip-hop. Totally. Yeah, it's trap. It's whatever. It's whatever it's we totally. do. You know what I mean? But, see, it's connected. Part of the reason I realized that it has so much currency is because so much of American culture, once you leave the Northeast, is Southern. Sure. You know what I mean? Absolutely. That's the whole thing. That's you know white I mean? and black. 
that the yeah, South yeah, really yeah. drives American yeah, culture. Yeah. And it's because people do things community there. I mean, if you just want to go on the black side, HBCUs and stuff, but that's a whole internet, uh, multi-generational cultural thing that's going on. Like if you're like a young black man that's coming up in the, um, you know, um, in, in the South, like your uncles and your grandfathers and the things they do, you know, the way they tell stories are like going to define what culture is for you. And then you go to, you know, um, like family reunions, barbecues, uh, homecomings and all that stuff. Like it's just much more of a communal culture than, than is what, than, you know, like, you know, things got much more fragmented in terms of family cultures, you know, it's the family culture of the community. So let me you know, ask, kind of, so since, since you break that down, yeah. let me ask you this, because you're from D.C., and I think you understand D.C. far better than I do. Well, I, I understand the D.C. that was, because okay. that, that D.C. is also like a reflection of that fragmentation. I mean, yeah. everywhere, uh, pretty much everywhere where mm. we have a significant black community, and a significant crime community, mm-hmm. okay? We mm-hmm. have a significant hip-hop community. New York, L.A., Atlanta, <laughs> right? Chicago, but, Detroit, well, D.C. See, well, you know, see, that's the thing, though. But it's like, you know, like, you know, Detroit doesn't really have, like, a great rap Okay, I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna let you take yeah. that on your own. I no, no. disagree. No, no. It's, but it's, it, it's, no. Detroit does have no it, a history. It, it, no, no. I'm not saying. But I'm saying like it doesn't. It's like when you make that connection between crime and 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 hip hop. The thing is like, you know, Dream broke it down to me once. You know, you know the reason why you don't have the same stream of great rappers coming out of that, like. Uh, epic criminal culture. She said, she said, cause there's no irony in Detroit. <laughs> like you can't come up in Detroit and start talking about somebody's mama without expecting to get shot. Like people just take you for what you are now. Jay Dilla. Yeah. Game changer. Right. Yeah. I mean, but why, yeah, but DC yeah, yeah. out of the big American chocolate cities right. has not produced a great rap culture no, because a, we had a we cause go-go culture reigned supreme there. Like cause young folks there, they like they they went out to dance to bands that were playing six hours, you know. And so hip hop never even like really like mattered to them the way that Go Go did, you know. For ten years after it it had blown up everywhere else, like kids were still coming out to see bands. And the only reason it didn't continue into the 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 twenty first century is because. The kids who started going to those things got younger and younger. So, and it was like young girls were, were coming there doing these pool parties, doing these nasty ass dances. And what happened was they started making videos of these things, uh, reproducing them, selling the DVDs of these things at like the mom and pop record stores. So then some, it was like a news channel did a whole report. On the fact that, like, there were these videos of these 14-year-old girls wearing bikinis at these go-go dances at, like, 3 or 4 in the morning. And when their parents and grandparents saw that shit, they they just shut down go-go in the city. Like, go-go had to go really underground. Had to go out into the suburbs. So that's the point at which, like, when the bands stopped having, like, like, um, uh, being able to be economically independent, you know, through just doing the go-go dances— and it changed. Yeah, yeah, things changed. Two, you know? There's two and more so, points I want yeah, to get Yeah, go ahead, through. go ahead. 
because you've interviewed one of the people who I'm dying to interview may never get the chance. Sade. <laughs> how, how you do of all the ones? Come on, on that. Come on. Who else is going to be, man? You well, know? I mean, it, was, it, was, it could have been Pryor. It could have been Miles. But like, what's well, it like? Well, I mean, like we're talking about people that are still, still what's around. What's it like interviewing Sade? Okay. So here's the thing. So this is when, you know, this, this go, let's get this in. Like, we were all writing for Vibe yes. by then, right? So Vibe actually turned hip hop journalism to a real profession. Oh yeah, yeah. And we got loot to go do these junkets. We got to stay at like three and four star hotel hotels. People, you could rent the whip that you wanted. You know what I mean? Go out to L.A. Boom. So I think she was staying at the uh, the Mondrian. Yeah, um, and um, they sent me out. Uh, a day before the interview because she was making a video. You know, it was like the Lover's Rock return thing. She hadn't done an interview in a number of years. years. Yeah. And so uh, what they told me was like, just observe her making a video. Don't try to talk to her on the set. Right? Okay. So this is the first moment is that, um, um, so I'm on the sound stage. I can see the set in the room, you know, for the thing. Like, real sci-fi, un- looking kind of set. Um, and I'm standing at the bottom of these stairs. Upstairs is the makeup room, costume, right? So I'm like turned this way. So I'm turned towards the entrance to the to the soundstage. Uh, my back is to the stairs. And so I kind of feel this presence <laughs> coming down the stairs, right? And so my whole thing is be cool, right? I'm like, it's the Fonzie thing, just be cool, you know? <laughs> and so... She gets right behind me. She says, hi, Greg. <laughs> right? Oh. I was like, oh. I said, oh, she got a Grace Jones kind of speak. It's kind of deep. She's got a deeper speaking voice, you know what I mean, than the singing voice. I was like, so, I, you know, my musical mind is just like, oh, okay, that's where, you know, like her, her she's got her own kind of reverb chamber okay. <laughs> for her chest, vo- her head voice, right? You know. So, man, so next day, you know, go to the, um, you know, go to the hotel. And so um, my whole thing, again, it's like, be cool, you know, because I because I've also read, you know, I've just I, other of our colleagues who I meant, won't mention, you know, have talked about doing these interviews with like female stars and just getting like totally bubble headed, mm-hmm. you know, to be it happen. <laughs> before, you know, starstruck, you know, so I'm like, I'm just going to be cool ass nigga up in here, you know, right. <laughs> So I go in and it's like, and we're so, we're literally sitting about as far apart as you and I are, right? And I'm still being cool and like, you know, I had this like really nice orange silk shirt, you know? And uh, and first thing she says is like, oh, that's a really beautiful shirt, you know? <laughs> so I was like, but I'm cool, <laughs> you know? And, but the thing I, I realized subsequently, as you know, too, is that because these people on that level are just approached all the time because by people with all kinds of agendas, like they can sniff you out mm-hmm. in a second. So you have to be, you have to make them feel like, yeah, I'm just here to, I'm just here to record what you have to say about your life experience. And then like in 45 minutes, man, she gave me her whole life. You know what I mean? Like, and it was beautiful. You know, she just talked about, she never thought about doing music, grew up kind of poor, their projects, council estates, African father left behind this great record collection, grew up loving music, never thought about doing it. 
when she went to college, it was totally about trying to find something to do where she could just make some money. So that's why she went into fashion. She wasn't even thinking about fashion. You know, one night, though, she's with a classmate and her brother sells weed. They drive uh, across town uh, or across uh, counties or whatever to get to him. They drive through an area that's got a lot of mist. She gets out the car and says she just wishes for something fantastic to happen for me. Gets to her brother's place. He's not there. Um, and um, a friend, but his friend says, hey, the reggae band Misty and Roots is playing in London tomorrow. Why don't you come? So make a long story short, she goes to that gig. First, this guy comes up to her and asks her, like, um, hey, would you join my band? You know, nothing about it. He just looking at her. It's like. You know, and so she agrees to be a part of this band. That is what puts her on the musical radar to where uh, somebody asked her to join the, the the band Pride, you know, Stuart Matthewman's band. And, you know, she says the first song that they write is together, Smooth Operator. <laughs> that's the, so you ask, it's like, that's the magic of, of Charlotte. Like, that's just. She paid for it. Yeah, yeah. And the yeah. universe just Yeah, responded. she manifested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, somebody who just carries a certain kind of energy around, you Jesus. know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. Last thing, you've yes. been, you were working on a book about James Brown, but that mm. has become something else. What are you uh, doing? Right. Um, well, I call what a, this phase of my life the life of a rogue scholar. Okay. Right. So I've taught now at a... Uh, just done visiting professorships at uh, Brown, Williams, Columbia, um, Classic uh, Princeton, New England, great yeah, schools. Yeah, you know. Um, well, I come in and you know they set me up for a semester or two to do something. I did. I was at Brown for about four years, teaching Afrofuturism class. You know, um, but a lot of the way I've sustained myself in the collapse of after the collapse of journalism has actually been doing. Uh, either talking gigs or writing for uh, um, art museums and galleries, you know, doing those kind of essays, which, you know, like, you know, they, they, they pay well. They keep a brother sustained, you know. And then, you know, I've been doing my band, you know, for the last 20 years, Burnt Sugar. You know, we just did uh, a live score to Shaft at the Apollo, sold it out, you know. So, you know, that's been just a whole other part of my life where, you know, there's some people that don't even know like me as a writer, you know, because sure. they just know the, you know, the band's escapades and stuff. So, but, um, but um, right after JB passed, um, I was approached uh, to, to do um, uh, a book on him uh, for, you know, for um, Riverhead and, uh, you know, did a, did a draft that uh, I thought was going somewhere, but, you know, editor didn't. You know, so in the, in the ways of publishing, you know, kind of after once they give you, you know, once they kind of give you a certain advance, um, you know, you can just kind of sit there, you know, dormant for a while until one of you figures out, you know, better idea. So I was approached with the idea of doing a book on uh, black icons, okay, and um, and kind of spent some time doing that, but then I realized like, oh man, it's like okay, at this phase of life career, like. You know, if I'm going to do some kind of magnum opus, it's really going to be about the thing you talked about earlier, you know, philosophy of black culture. So the, the next thing, make a long story short, is going to be called, um, that I'm working on, is called, uh, it's called Hello Darkness. 
It's like Black Creation versus Slavery, Inc. So I'm looking at all the ways in which the culture has been in the front line of us combating, you know, um, you know, the oppressive forces that brought us here and that still are sustaining themselves uh, through uh, trying to suppress, uh, you know, uh, black community, black people, you know, but looking at the ways in which like our, 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 Instrument, our, our instruments of, uh, of of war, you know, our way of counter counter attacking that uh, have been through, you know, these cult, you know, these cultural means, but through uh, those avatars that we talked about earlier, you know, uh, but just uh, the blues itself, jazz itself, gospel itself, you know, um, the radical political culture, you know, these ideas, you know, um, you know, the way in which um, like we've kind of been able to weaponize, like kind of black thoughts and dreams and expressive culture, you know, and uh, to the point, to the point where we arrive at this moment where, you know, we look around and people we know and people we don't are like winning every kind of a award being recognized. These, there's these great opportunities now for, for black writers of all kinds, black visual artists that didn't exist. Like people, you know, have kind of like manifest, uh, have kind of gone mob deep, yeah, you know, inside of like these mainstream institutions, and um, one of the jokes I make to myself all the time is like, "Yeah, we we keep winning the war in the air while getting our asses kicked on the ground." You know what I mean? But it's like you realize that to the extent that you can look at, um, you know, black models of of uh, of success in the culture that also have incredible amounts of. Um, of integrity and creative innovation going on. It's like, yeah, it's because that's the, that's the tradition. And that got established. Shoot, man, I, I start with Benjamin Banneker, you know what yes. I mean? Yeah. I mean, this is a cat that taught himself how to read the moon and the tides and wrote a whole mathematical treatise about that, that was verified, you know, but when he sends it to Thomas Jefferson, you know, it's not just to show like, Hey, a black man, you know, can do advanced mathematical calculus, but he also sends him a letter saying, you know, you're a hypocrite and a fraud, you know, like you're enslaving my people at the same time. So mm. this is combination, you know, of, of futurism and activism, you know, what's going on. So those I want to talk about, those are the things I want to talk about in the culture and like why we matter, you know, um, you why know, black th- folks matter. Yeah. And why, yeah. Why the culture matters to the point where, there is a Toni Morrison novel in Farsi. You know what I mean? Like, what is that energy, you know, that the whole rest, the rest of the world, you know, recognizes as something that's, uh, that's deep, that's spiritual, you know, that speaks to them. It's like, you know, um, you know, like why, you know, why does, you know, the prowess of a, you know, a Prince or MJ or Mike, you know, Michael Jordan or, you know, like, why does it leave such a deep impact in places where it is, it's a completely alien energy. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a completely alien culture. And, and you know, you're talking about it's having this impact in places where people have deep, centuries deep pride in their own culture, their own religion, you know, their own expression. You know what I mean? So it's also trying to get to the heart of that that mystery, you know, in the page. So I've kind of set that Easy as, as the epic goal, exactly. Light work, exactly. You know what I mean? Because it's like by the same token, it's got to be, it's got to have that, like, grab them by the collar, 
kind of intensity of that early voice work too. So I'm like, you know, I'm setting myself that challenge to like reactivate that Greg Tate on the page, you know, to do this, um, uh, you know, this kind of reckoning with like just black energy in the world, black creative energy in the world. Thanks so much to Tate for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Arafano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday and next Friday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.